0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Brookmarkle and coming up on the program, the Key Marco Cat and other Calusa artifacts are
1: on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum. It's really the culmination of a vision that the founders of the Historical Society had uh, 25 years ago when they created this organization. We'll discuss the state of education in 1871 Florida.
2: There was just a very difficult and uphill battle for Floridians after the Civil War, and that included the educational system.
0: And we'll have the third and final segment of our series on the impact of sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
3: Now old Mr. Johnson had troubles of his own. He had a yellow cat who wouldn't leave his home. He tried and he tried to give the cat away. He gave it to a man going far, far away. But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They thought he was a gunner, But the cat came back. He just couldn't stay away.
0: The folk song The Cat Came Back by Harry S. Miller was written in 1893. Just three years later, the Key Marco Cat came back to human awareness during an archaeological dig in southwest Florida. After more than a century mostly away from Florida, the Key Marco Cat has come home to the Marco Island Historical Museum for an extended stay. The Key Marco Cat and other artifacts on display at the museum were created by the Calusa before European contact in 1513 and for about two and a half centuries after that, the Colusa inhabited much of South Florida, including Marco Island. Austin Bell is curator of collections for the Marco Island Historical Society.
1: It was very well-established, uh, centuries of tradition uh, and culture in this area, going back maybe even uh, as far as 6,000 years uh, from the Colusa to their archaic ancestors. and. Uh, one of the key reasons for that was the availability of marine and estuarine resources in the waters all around them and so from those fish and shellfish that they ate uh, which were a predominant part of their diet they were able to sustain themselves and also develop technology uh, such as shell tools that they were able to then use to uh, fully exploit uh, the resources around them and create a comfortable uh, living situation for themselves for centuries, generations of people.
0: Archaeologists have discovered numerous shell mounds that served as the foundations for buildings in
1: Calusa cities. Many of them were built on large uh, shell earthworks, including uh, one here on Marco Island uh, that archaeologists call Key Marco. Uh, and They were built basically uh, cities built on shell middens, uh, which were essentially at one point uh, garbage piles and refuse of you know the shellfish that they were eating every day uh... and then they built their structures on top of these shell middens um, and they were scattered all throughout you know the ten thousand islands the everglades the southwest florida area spanish documents indicate that there are at least fifty or sixty towns one of them was likely muspa which was in the area of marco island according to spanish descriptions and maps um, and um, so that would probably, possibly be in the area where the Key Marcos site was later found. The Calusa were one of the most powerful
0: tribes in Florida with a sophisticated political system. Austin Bell.
1: We know from Spanish documents that they did uh, war with uh, the Tocobaga in the uh, Tampa area to the north, um, but they were very powerful by the time Europeans arrived in South Florida generally. They controlled at least 50 or 60 towns uh, and demanded tribute from places as far away as the Florida Keys, Miami, uh, Lake Okeechobee, and even influenced as far away as Cape Canaveral. Uh, and there's evidence of trade even as far as Missouri and other parts of the southeast. Uh, but they were known as a fierce people, the name Calos, as described by the Spanish They said that they named themselves the Fierce People and they had a reputation for that uh, with not only the Europeans but other native tribes in Florida.
0: The Spanish had first-hand knowledge about just how fierce the Calusa could be because their attempts to establish European settlements were effectively repelled.
1: From the very beginning, um, Juan Ponce de Leon, when he came up around the the southern uh, tip of Florida and encountered the Calusa in 1513, uh, he was met with uh, a fleet of war canoes that repelled him um, and uh, later actually led to his death. He was mortally wounded when he returned in 1521 uh, by a Calusa weapon. Um, and so, yeah, the Calusa kept Europeans kind of at arm's length for the better part of two centuries, uh, but ultimately uh, did succumb to uh, not only the diseases that were brought in, but also. Uh, warring with neighboring tribes and uh, slavery. They were actually, some of them were taken as captives or slaves by uh, tribes to the north that were allied with the English. In
0: 1763, the British took control of Florida from Spain and Austin Bell explains that most of the Calusa were gone by then.
1: 1763 is about the time that the Calusa sort of disappear from the historical record. Um, It's thought that most of them were driven further south into the Florida Keys, and some uh, w- then fled on to Cuba, uh, where many of them actually died of disease shortly thereafter. And so that's really the last documented reference to the Calusa and the native Florida people that you know were just driven out by Europeans and in their invasion of the continent.
0: It's possible that any Calusa that remained in Florida were absorbed into the Seminole tribe, which arrived in Florida in the 18th century.
1: There are some uh, Spanish uh, oral histories that say that if a person is particularly tall, they may have some Calusa blood, and there are actually stories uh, and songs from a point in Seminole history where they were said to have lived side by side. Um, so it's possible that some survived uh, either here in Florida or in Cuba, um, but you know, from a practical standpoint, the Calusa as a people are no more, uh, there's no place to go and talk to a Calusa person Uh, There's no one that speaks the Calusa language. And so in that way, the Seminole and Miccosukee that are here with us now are, uh, you know, unique culture from the Calusa. In
0: 1896, Frank Hamilton Cushing led an archaeological excavation on Marco Island, uncovering ancient artifacts of the Calusa.
1: Curator Austin Bell. In about 1895, he pulled some unusual items out of a muck pit that he was just going to collect fertilizer from for his vegetable garden. And so one thing led to another. Word got up to Cushing, who was visiting his personal physician at the University of Pennsylvania. And he ended up coming down here on a reconnaissance trip to investigate in 1895. And it only took him about an hour to realize that what was coming out of this muck pit was truly special and that he had to organize a full-scale investigation uh, the following year. So uh, in 1896, he and a team from uh, the University of Pennsylvania and the Smithsonian Institution came to Marco Island and excavated a site in the muck pit, which he called the court of the pile dwellers for a period of about three months, finding just unbelievably sophisticated and uniquely preserved artifacts that don't ordinarily survive in in archeological sites.
0: The six-inch tall wooden carving called the Key Marco cat is one of the most intriguing pre-Columbian artifacts from Florida. The purpose of this anthropomorphic part-feline, part-human figure
1: remains a mystery. There are some theories, probably the most popular one is, you know, taken from Spanish documents, inferences made about uh, a temple of idols that the Spanish described, where the Calusa would have worshipped these idols and worn masks and performed masked processions, with musical performances, um, and uh, it's thought that maybe the cat and these other animal figureheads that were discovered at Key Marco were the idols that these Spanish uh, documents referred to. So it could have had uh, religious or spiritual importance. It could have also just been uh, art for art's sake or a piece of furniture, And you know, because the clues aren't here to tell us themselves. We don't know for sure.
0: The Key Marco cat is on loan from the Smithsonian Institution Other amazing artifacts from the Cushing Excavation are also on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum. Curator Austin Bell.
1: The expedition was joint sponsored between the Smithsonian and the University of Pennsylvania, and so some of the artifacts are now in Philadelphia, some are in Washington, Uh, but we were able to obtain loans from the University of Pennsylvania of uh, four amazing uh, artifacts from the same site, uh, an alligator figurehead, a human face mask, uh, and these artifacts still have the original paint visible on them. What is possibly a sea turtle or bird figurehead, depending on who you ask and, and who's interpreting it. And then also a small uh, Sunray Venus clamshell with the painting of a human figure inside, which was a very controversial item because uh, when Cushing returned to Washington, uh, some members of the Bureau of American Ethnology actually accused him of forging the artifact. Uh, so that. Particular object has a really unique history as well, Um, and ultimately it was thought to be proven um, generally as authentic, but there are still some doubters as to its authenticity. So, uh, just a, a really fascinating set of artifacts on loan to us.
0: Bell is pleased that the artifacts on display at the Marco Island Historical Museum still exist. Many of the pieces that Cushing excavated in 1896 disintegrated when removed from their anaerobic environment.
1: Many of the artifacts, even as they were pulling them out of the mud, were disintegrating right before their eyes, and uh, you can imagine over more than 100 years in museum storage, those that survived the initial excavation, many of those has, have since shrunken, warped, turned completely to dust, and so uh, what you see here is really, you know, are the best examples that have survived, uh, not only the excavation, but uh, more than a century in, in museum collection storage it was good planning that
0: cushing had an artist on hand at his excavation drawings still exist of many of the artifacts that were lost austin bell
1: they found a number of these spectacular type artifacts the human face mask at least 14 of those animal figureheads um, painted wooden carvings things that are just stunning in their artistic uh, sophistication but they also found lots of utilitarian household items uh, and especially remarkable is the fishing net that they found. you can actually see uh, the knots that they used in the size uh, of the openings in the net that still survived and you know through centuries of sitting in, in this muck and then you know uh, shell tools and uh, wooden boxes and stools and just all sorts of, Um, household items that were probably very common uh, but we didn't know about before this archaeological excavation was made uh, because ordinarily those things made of wood and plant fiber will just disintegrate and not survive in archaeological contexts.
0: Banners on lampposts lining the streets of Marco Island announced the return of the Key Marco cat after more than a century. It's clear that the community is proud that this particular cat came back home.
1: It's really the culmination of a vision that the founders of the Historical Society had uh, 25 years ago when they created this organization. Um, They wanted to build a museum on Marco Island. They achieved that dream in 2010, and they actually built the museum uh, architecturally around the idea that these artifacts would one day come home and be put into these display cases that they installed from the outset, and so here we are nine years after the museum first opened and the artifacts are finally in place. Uh, We're just so excited to have these artifacts here and share that with with the public.
0: Austin Bell is curator of collections at the Marco Island Historical Museum where the Key Marco Cat and other Calusa artifacts are now on display.
3: But the cat came back the very next day. The cat came back. They thought he was a gunner, but the cat came back he just couldn't stay away.
0: Give me a meow. This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brotemarkle. Time is running out to register for our exciting Caribbean conference cruise taking place May 16th through 23rd. You can guarantee your place on board now at myfloridahistory.org. Fascinating presentations by leading Florida historians and graduate students will be augmented with special tours to historic sites in San Juan, St. Thomas, and Grand Turk. Don't miss the boat. More information is at myfloridahistory.org. Teach your children
3: well Their father's help did slowly go by
0: Joining us now is Ben DiBiase, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. Ben, in 1871, a federal report was published that included an evaluation of education in Florida.
2: Yeah, that's right, Ben. What we're looking at is a fairly standard federal report on the overall condition of of the nation's education systems by state which of course includes Florida in 1871. And in the report, there are hundreds of tables and reports that deal with the demographics of the nation's school systems. They talk about truancy rates, talk about what is actually being taught in the schools. You know, this was a time when a a kind of a classical European education was really in vogue. Uh, They talk about the differences between public and private education, how to use public funds to pay for education. That was a big debate in the United States at this time. So there's really a lot of fascinating information about the state of America's schooling systems during this time period after the Civil War. And again, it's broken down by state. So the beginning of the book includes these overall statistical analyses of how different states compare in terms of literacy rates, things like that. And then it it breaks down by state how each county, how each city and municipality is handling funding and things like that. So some of it is a little bit dry, but if you kind of step back and look at it as a snapshot of how the young generation of Americans that are coming up in the post-Civil War years, how they're being educated, it's really a fascinating collection of material. And
0: unfortunately, this report took a very dim view of the state of education in Florida after the Civil War, didn't it?
2: Yeah, it really does. The first sentence under the Florida section goes like this, quote, "...the information from this state is meager," unquote. And the second sentence is, quote, "...education encounters fearful obstacles," unquote a bit foreboding when you start the chapter on Florida. But remember, too, that Florida was a Confederate state. This is only 1871. Florida was a, a left the Union in 1861, it was a fairly small state, but was one of the hardest hit by the Civil War, both economically, in terms of its people. A lot of people died that were from Florida, fought for the Confederacy, and there was just a very difficult and uphill battle for Floridians after the Civil War, and that included the educational system. So by 1871, they were really kind of crawling out out of this hole. In fact, Florida was only readmitted back into the Union in 1868. So it had only been a state. They redrafted their constitution in 1868, and they were still really under federal regulation and federal laws. So of the southern states that were trying to rebuild, Florida is really at the bottom of that list. And, and you can see that illustrated in this U.S. Bureau of Education report. And as you go through, the, the entire report for Florida is only three pages compared to some states that are 20, 30, 40 pages. they are only three pages of material. In fact, all of this data comes from reports given to the U.S. Bureau of of Education from the Peabody Fund. Now, the Peabody Fund was started in the late 1860s by George Peabody, who was the very well-known American financier and and philanthropist. He's considered the father of American philanthropy. He gave away a lot of his fortune to, especially after the Civil War, to poorer states in the South. And and the education fund that he set up, a lot of that money went to Florida. So there were $1,000 here, $500 here going to different schools. So most of the narrative part of this report deals with just money that's being handed out as part of the Peabody Fund. Now, they say here that, according to Florida's 1868 Constitution, the schools are supposed to be funded by a mix of both public and private funding, but unfortunately, they say that the state tax and then the local taxes are so dismal that it's almost non existent. So, almost 100% of the funding is coming from private sources, including the Peabody Fund, the Freedmen's Bureau, in the case of African American students. So, it's very, very difficult, especially in rural counties. When we flip over to the third page, There's a table here that lists the school attendance and illiteracy rates for each county. And you'll note that some of the larger counties like Duval and Monroe County, which includes Key West, were some of the most populous counties in Florida, Alachua, Leon County, Escambia. There's a high rate of illiteracy among African-American students, which isn't surprising because we have, again, this is just after the Civil War, and and there were a lot of efforts to try and establish school systems for, for young people, who were many of whom were born into slavery. But you'll also notice that there's a list here for foreign-born students, and actually the county with the highest number of foreign students is Monroe County, is Key West, because you had a lot of students from the Caribbean and from Cuba and places like that who were coming over and and who had grown up in Key West. But you'll see that there are extremely high rates of illiteracy of, of students who either cannot write and read or both. It's particularly high, again, amongst African American students based on this report. And this report wasn't even compiled by the state. This is how bad the education system was. They couldn't even get these numbers together. The numbers come from the US federal census, so they're actually borrowing from an early census report. And out of Florida's 39 counties in Florida in 1871, only 26 had actually organized their school districts at that time and could create school systems. So only 26 out of 39 counties, which were the school districts at that time, Only 26 of them actually had active schools within their districts.
0: And of course, Florida's education system would continue to face challenges. But after this 1871 report, education did improve
2: somewhat in Florida, right? Yeah, that's right. As we got into the latter part of the 19th century and into what we call the progressive era, there was much more focus on early education and public education in particular. One Floridian by the name of Albert Russell really spearheaded publicly funded and compulsory public education, which was not... The case in 1871, you didn't have to send your kids to school. In fact, you know a lot of these rural areas, you know, kids worked in the farms and in, in the fields. They may have gone to school a few months out of the year, but it wasn't a requirement. So, towards the latter part of the 19th century, we started making strides, but keep in mind, too, that by 1885, Florida had rewritten its constitution and codified a lot of these, what we'd call Jim Crow and these segregationist laws. So for African American Floridians, their educational experience was not the same as white students in the latter part into the early 20th century. So there were certainly a lot of challenges into the 20th century, but it did improve from from 1871, for sure.
0: And challenges even today. Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you. Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa. To see the federal report from 1871 that we've been discussing, check out our web extras at myfloridahistory.org. Don't you ever ask them why If
3: they told you you would cry So just
4: look at them and sigh.
0: This is Florida Frontiers. Public history graduate student Levi Watson has been looking at the impact of sea level rise in historic St. Augustine. We have the third and final part of that series.
4: Recently, the US government's climate website, climate.gov, updated its 21st century sea level rise projections to two meters of rise by the year 2100. The end of the century may seem distant, but coastal cities around the world are already dealing with the effects of incremental rise. St. Augustine is working to combat those effects to protect both modern structures and the city's many historic buildings and monuments. While in St. Augustine, I sat down with Jessica Beach, an engineer in St. Augustine's Public Works Department. Beach is in charge of the city's stormwater program. I asked her about one of the most pressing issues the city is dealing with, nuisance flooding.
3: So, anywhere from twelve to sixteen times a year, we get the tidal water backing up into our storm sewer system, and it floods roads and things like that. So we've been dealing with that for a very long time. However, the frequency, and I'd say the depth of that is start we're starting to notice it getting worse. We need to start doing what we can now to plan for the future. And so, Currently, yes, we're already vulnerable. It's going to get worse if we're not able to implement some of these strategic adaptation plans on
4: that. In an effort to identify the most vulnerable areas of the city, St. Augustine participated in a coastal vulnerability study. Phase one of the study used mapping technology to identify the most vulnerable areas of the city. The second phase suggested ways in which the city might adapt to and manage coastal changes caused by our changing climate.
3: So we were fortunate enough to participate in this study, and that happened, I had mentioned 2015 to 2017, well, we had two hurricanes right in the middle of that. And that brought to light what the mapping is telling us, and we faced the reality of what that looks like. Hurricane Matthew, it was not a direct hit to our area, and this was 2016. It was about 30 miles offshore, and we had a storm surge of about seven feet. So when you look at elevation mapping, you project that through the city and there was a lot of flooding within the city. So storm surge were already vulnerable as well on that too. When Hurricane Irma came through the state, we didn't have as much flooding that we did under Hurricane Matthew, but it still impacted a large percentage of the city.
4: One of the areas that was hit the hardest by Hurricanes Matthew and Irma was the Davis Shores neighborhood on the north end of Anastasia Island. The city and the state of Florida are working on projects to improve drainage and prevent nuisance flooding in the Davis Shores, but some private homeowners are taking matters into their own hands.
3: So if you drive around Davis Shores, which got impacted heavily from both of the hurricanes, but particularly Matthew, you can see a lot of the homes are being demolished and rebuilt much higher. So those are some of the mitigation options that private homeowners are doing to help address that.
4: Even before Davis Shores was developed, this area was recognized as being very low-lying. Charles Tingley, Senior Research Librarian at the St. Augustine Historical Society, told me a bit more about the area. So in the last couple of years, we've seen a lot of teardowns, and uh, if the house was wooden, people calling the, the house movers and elevating the house above a reasonable height limit. This is especially true on the neighborhood of Davis Shores, which is the north end of Anastasia Island, which was a neighborhood that was dredged up and created out of a marsh uh, by DP Davis in the 1920s. This is the same man who created uh, Davis Isles in Tampa, another very low lying area. So um, these artificial lands um, are being recognized as having uh, real threats uh, due to rising water. During our conversation, Miss Beach showed me some photos of the last two hurricanes.
3: This is another from Hurricane Irma. This is the high water mark on this wall at this home, and this is right next to Lake Maria Sanchez. So that gives you, again, perspective, if you will, of, of what these hurricanes do.
4: The high water mark in the photo was a little over four feet from the ground. This photo is from the neighborhood that contains St. Augustine's National Cemetery and the monuments to the soldiers from the Dade Massacre. The distance from Lake Maria Sanchez to the Matanzas River is around 700 feet, and the cemetery is located between the two. Of all the low-lying areas in the city, this is one of the most vulnerable. Beach told me about the next major mitigation project the city is planning, which should help protect the area from storm surge.
3: We've got Retrofitting the stormwater outfalls to keep the tidewaters out. We're looking at stormwater conveyance upgrades right around City Hall to help move the water to the lake. And then putting in a pump station to be able to physically, mechanically move the water out when it rains. And then you have the flood wall to provide that added layer of protection from the height.
4: While these types of projects are typically successful in the immediate, The future of St. Augustine and its historic sites remain in jeopardy in the face of sea level rise.
0: Levi Watson is a public history graduate student at the University of Central Florida. You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us right here again next week. You can also listen as a podcast. Find us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org and join the conversation on Facebook. Production assistance this week comes from Bendy Biassi and Levi Watson. Our web extras are produced by Jerry Klein. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brookmarkle.